All right, welcome everybody to the second session of Let's Keep the Amazing in Grace. Tonight's session is called God's Great Demonstration of Love. This message is foundational. Everything regarding our faith as believers is built on the foundation of God's great demonstration of love towards us, which is the cross of Jesus Christ and His resurrection. When I say foundational, I'm not talking about surface. I am talking about deep. It's deep. There's nothing deeper than this simple message that I'm going to give you tonight. Healing is not deeper. Miracles are not deeper. Behavioral change is certainly not deeper. When it's the foundation, it's the deepest it can go. Everything else is built on that. Foundational means you can't see it. You can see all those other things. But when it's foundational, it's because it's in the inside. It's on the inside, okay? 1 Corinthians 3.11 No other foundation can anyone lay than that which has been laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now, this message is dedicated to anyone who felt like God could never forgive you. Spoiler alert. He already has. The question is, can we receive His grace? Did you ever hear that on Judgment Day, you would stand before the throne in heaven, Shay's nodding, and there would be a videotape played by God or the angels or somebody of your entire life and all of your sins would be made public for everyone to see in heaven and on earth. I heard that when I was a teenager in a youth meeting and it terrified me. And I dreaded Judgment Day ever since then until I learned what the Bible actually says. And now I look forward to that day. Hebrews 8 verse 12. In the new covenant of grace, God says, For I will be merciful to their unrighteousness and their sins and their lawless deeds. I will remember no more. Ume. We had that last week in John 8.12, Ume, I will never, certainly not ever by any means while I remember their sins. And then he says a new covenant, he has made the first obsolete. God will not remember your sins. Why? Because your sins have already been remembered 2,000 years ago in the body of Jesus Christ at the cross. Amen. When God remembers sins, you know what he does? He obliterates sin. The reason is because that sin separated you from Him and He didn't like that. So I can assure you, brothers and sisters, there will be no videotape of your sins on Judgment Day. In fact, Jesus did not come to condemn, but to save. Simple, simple verse that everybody knows. John 3.16 For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whoever believes in Him should not perish, but have everlasting life. For God did not send His Son to condemn the world, but that the world through Him might be saved. And Jesus also said in John 5, 19, 
The Son can do nothing of Himself but what He sees the Father do. For whatever He does, the Son does in like manner. So when you see Jesus going to the cross for you, you are seeing the Father's heart of love for you. 2 Corinthians 5.19 For God was in Christ, reconciling the world to Himself, not imputing their trespasses to them. What does that mean? Not counting their sins against them. If God were to count your sins against you, it would be the crime of double jeopardy, punishing the same sin twice, and that would be unjust. But our God is a God of justice. And if I were to believe that God were counting my sins against me, then I would be devaluing the Son of God in His completely complete, perfectly perfect work for me. And God has committed to us this word of reconciliation. What is the word of reconciliation? It's right there in the text. He's not counting your sins against you. Therefore, now we are ambassadors for Christ as though God were pleading through us. We implore you. <laughs> this is to the unbeliever, right? We implore you, be reconciled to God. That does not mean go fix yourself and then come to God. That means believe the next verse. For God made Jesus who knew no sin to be sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. Jesus became sin at the cross apart from any sinful actions, deeds, or thoughts. And once we receive the free gift of His righteousness, we become righteous apart from anything good we ever did. We are righteous not because we do righteous acts, but because His righteousness has become our righteousness. He took our sin. We take His righteousness. It's called the great exchange. And that is described in detail in Isaiah 53, long before Jesus came. And I'm going to read it in the Amplified. Just a couple of verses. Sure, and I'm going to say Jesus in the place of He. Surely Jesus has borne our griefs, sicknesses, weaknesses, and distresses, and carried our sorrows and pains of punishment. Yet we ignorantly considered Jesus stricken, smitten, and afflicted by God as with leprosy. But Jesus was wounded for our transgressions. Jesus was bruised for our guilt and iniquities. And the chastisement needful to obtain peace and well-being for us was laid upon Him. And by the stripes that wounded Jesus, we have been healed and made whole. Verse 12, Jesus poured out His life unto death and He let Himself be regarded as a criminal, numbered among the transgressors. But He bore and took away the sin of many and He made intercession. That's the cross, y'all. For who? The transgressors, the rebellious. And who is that? Me. And in the context of that very detailed description of Jesus' work on our behalf, God swore on oath in the very next chapter of Isaiah, Isaiah 54, He swore on oath to Himself that because of that intercession of Jesus Christ, that He would never be angry with us. Whew. And I want to tell you, what is the wrath of God? If the wrath of God were to come against you, you would not be sitting here today. You'd be incinerated. But that's what happened to your sin in the body of Jesus Christ. 
Isaiah 54, 8, With a little wrath I hid my face from you for a moment, but with everlasting kindness, chassid in the Hebrew, it means grace. With everlasting grace, I will have mercy on you, says the Lord your Redeemer. For this is like the waters of Noah to me. That means the waters of judgment. For just as I have sworn that the waters of Noah would no longer cover the earth, so I have sworn that I would not be angry with you nor rebuke you. Oh, thus the sign of the rainbow in the sky. Did you know the sign of the rainbow is the sign of the new covenant of God's grace? I know we all know about the rainbow God put in the sky as a promise that He would never flood the earth again, but it's also a symbol and a sign that Jesus took the waters of judgment for us. And it is a sign that God will never be angry with us or rebuke us. In heaven right now, around the throne of grace is a rainbow, Revelation 4.3 around Jesus. And I want you to imagine that rainbow being around you because you are in Jesus. And you especially need to picture that with your spiritual eyes whenever you think that God is angry with you. God is there to help you. Today, Jesus is seated at the Father's right hand having cleansed your sins. Hebrews 1.3 When Jesus had purged your sins, but at first it says when Jesus by Himself. Did you see that part? Without any help from you. When He had purged your sins, completely removed them, He sat down at the right hand of the Majesty on high. Why did He sit down? Because the work was finished, right? Not one sin that you have ever committed or will ever commit was left unpunished. Not one sin remains in the new creation in your spirit who you are in Christ. That is your identity that is who you are. And you know what that means? God is not counting your sins against you. That is true love. That is perfect love. 1 John 4, verse 17, Love has been perfected, brought to completion, accomplished in this. This is how you're going to know that you are perfectly loved, that you might have boldness in the day of judgment. Boldness, parousia. It means free and fearless confidence without any concealment, without hesitation, nothing to hide, nothing to lose, nothing to gain, nothing to prove, no one to impress, no one to convince. Why? Because as Jesus is, so are you in this world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear because fear involves torment. And that word right there in the Greek literally means punishment. You do not need to fear punishment from God or the wrath of God. Perfect love. He who fears has not been made perfect in love. Now, I want to make a little note here. Consequences are not the same thing as punishment. Amen. When bad things happen, it is not God trying to torment you for something you did. Sin has consequences. Sin in the world. Adam's sin. Your sin. The devil. It might be just the devil. It might be the laws of nature. But I can promise you it is not God trying to torment you. What is perfect love? The kind that says there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Before you had a thought for Him, He already had a plan to redeem you. Before you were even born, Christ died for you. 
Romans 5 verse 6, for when we were still without strength, that means helpless, helpless to make ourselves right with God. In due time, Kairos, Christ died for the ungodly. You know what that word means in the Greek? Destitute of reverential awe for God. Condemning God. That's the scandal of the gospel, that Jesus died for those who condemned Him. For scarcely for a righteous man will one die, and perhaps even for a good man one might even dare to die. But God demonstrates His own love towards us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Much more than having now been justified by His blood. You know what justified means? Made righteous by His blood. We shall be saved from the wrath of God through Him. All of the wrath of God that you deserved towards your lawlessness your unrighteousness, your sin, your iniquity was poured on the spotless Lamb of God for you. Does it take your breath away? It does mine. I'm kind of shaking right now at just the idea of it. A long time ago before Jesus entered time in history in Psalm 32 verses 1 and 2, David looked down the quarters of time to the era that we're living in now, this side of the cross, and he envied us. And Romans 4 verse 6 says, Just as David also describes the blessedness of the man to whom God imputes righteousness apart from works. And then he goes on to describe two blessed states for the man who doesn't have to work to be right with God. The first blessed state, blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Number two, blessed is the man to whom the Lord shall not impute sin. The first blessed state says that your sins are forgiven. He covered the charges against you. The debt has been paid. You don't owe it. You do not owe God for your sins. The second blessed state's a little different than the first. Blessed is the man to whom the Lord shall not impute sin means that the record of your debt has been wiped out as if you never sinned. It's a fresh slate. How often do you need a fresh slate? Every day, multiple times a day, shall not ume again. We just had it in Hebrews 8.12. We had it in John 8.12 last time. Ume. Blessed is the man to whom the Lord will not ever by any means count his sins against him. God does not count your sins against you because the record of your sins does not exist in heaven. It's been taken away by the cross. But do we sin? Yes. This passage does not say you are blessed because you don't sin. It says you're blessed because when you do sin, God doesn't count it against you. Blessed is the man to whom the Lord shall not impute sin was written for people who do not have it all together, which includes David, which includes me, and maybe you. But what about the conviction of the Holy Spirit? Doesn't the Holy Spirit remind us all day, every day of when we fail? Isn't that His job? Well, what did Jesus say about the role of the Holy Spirit? In John 16, verse 7, He says, It is to your advantage that I go away, for if I do not go away, the Helper will not come to you. But if I do depart, I will send Him to you. And when He has come, He's going to help you. And this is how He's going to help you. 
He's going to convict the world. Now, that word world is the Greek word cosmos, and in this context, you've got to know context. It's speaking of the unbeliever, the believer, and even the devil. Convict means to convince as in a court of law, a judicial word. Convince as in a court of law. Three things. Of sin, of judgment, excuse me, of sin, of righteousness, and of judgment. And then he parsed it out so that there would be no confusion. He says, of sin, because they do not know me. Who's he talking about? The unbeliever. What is the sin? Unbelief. What is the help? The Holy Spirit is helping them to see that they are sinners in need of a Savior. And of righteousness, because you, disciples, you, believers, will see me no more. You need the Holy Spirit in your life. Jesus is prophesying of the new covenant reality that was about to come upon these disciples, of the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit to convict them, convince them as in a court of law of their righteousness in Jesus and to help them to overcome their unbelief. Because as I said last time, every day you're going to feel like you're not righteous but you aren't righteous by what you do. You are righteous by what He has already done. The question is, do you believe it? Jesus right now is seated at the Father's right hand, ever living to make intercession for us with His work for us, with His nail-pierced hands and His blood, which declares us acquitted and righteous and deserving of our inheritance and every blessing of God. So the Holy Spirit is inside of us to say you are the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. Now, I know what you're thinking. What about when I sin? What about that? How am I going to change? You have a new nature. And you are going to know in your new nature when you are not walking in consistency with the divine nature of Jesus Christ that you are a partaker of. And the Holy Spirit will help you will help you to walk. He guides us into all truth. He will testify of Jesus in your life. He will remind you of who you are. And if you will listen, He will lead you into right behavior. You see, grace empowers us to live right. If you believe right, you will live right. The rest of verse 11. The Holy Spirit convicts of judgment because the ruler of this world is judged. That's talking about the devil. Not you. The devil and the Holy Spirit is in our lives to remind us and to see that the accuser of the brethren, the devil, has been condemned. He was made a spectacle of at the cross. If we look at Jesus in the Gospels, we will see that he was not preoccupied with sin as we often are. He was preoccupied with loving people, saving people, healing people, delivering people, feeding people. He was preoccupied with setting people free from condemnation. And you can see this very clearly in the story of the man born blind. John 9 verse 1. Now as Jesus passed by, he saw a man who had been blind from birth. And his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Now I want to ask you a question. How could it be his sin that caused him to be born blind? That doesn't make any sense. And then think about this. 
his disciples were more preoccupied with sin than they were with the healer who was standing right there in their midst. They saw a person with a problem and they automatically went to sin. Listen to Jesus' answer. Neither this man nor his parents sinned, but that the works of God should be revealed in him, manifested, seen in him. What was that manifestation? He, he took away his blind eyes. He gave him sight. He's the man that said, I was blind, but now I see. A supernatural event occurred without reference to sin at all. But we often, even subconsciously, ask the question, whose sin caused this problem? But why don't we just ask the question, was that problem covered by the blood of Jesus? Blame games don't fix problems. Needs exist to be met, or as Jesus said, so that the works of God might be manifested. That's the paradigm shift you have when you begin seeing through the lens of grace. Grace will change your perspective from man-centered sin consciousness to Jesus-centered Jesus consciousness. And when we look at the whole Bible cross-eyed, right, cross-eyed, <laughs> we are going to see Jesus everywhere. But that's not the way I used to see the Bible. I would read it and see me everywhere and how to be a better person or else. And I used to teach the story of Abraham laying Isaac on the altar that way, right? I'd say something like this. Abraham laid Isaac, the son that he loved, on the altar. Have you laid your Isaacs down? Those Isaacs are standing between you and God. They're idols. You need to honor him and lay it down. What is it? Is it money? Is it your child? Is it your career? You need to lay it down. And here's the typical result. You walk away under condemnation because you couldn't lay your Isaac down. It might even be your child. Oh Lord, you can take my child if you want to. Or maybe you don't even know what your Isaac is. Or maybe you lay it down today and you pick it back up tomorrow. Is the story of Abraham laying Isaac on the altar about you? Or is it about someone else? Is it about you laying down your idols? Or is it about our Heavenly Father giving us His Son, the Son that He loves? Genesis 22.2, God said to Abraham, Take now your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. Did you know that that is the first mention of love in the Bible? Whenever you see the first mention of something in the Bible, it's significant, so take note. The first mention of love in the Bible is not about our love for God. It's about His love for us. It's like God is saying, I love the world so much that I'm going to give my son, my only son, the son that I love for them. And why did God send him to Mount Moriah? Because the highest peak of Moriah is Calvary, also called Golgotha, where Jesus was crucified. Genesis 22:6. So God, excuse me, so Abraham 
took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac his son. And he took the fire in his hand and a knife, and the two of them went together. I love that. Do you see the, our Heavenly Father and His Son going together to do what had to be done? That's a picture of the new covenant. Father and Son within the infallibility of the Godhead made this covenant on our behalf. So Isaac is a shadow of Jesus who carried the wood on his back. John 19, 17. Jesus bearing the cross, the wood. He went out to the place called the place of the skull, which in Hebrew is Golgotha. Genesis 22, verse 7. Now Isaac is asking his father a question. He says, Look, the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? And Abraham answered, My son, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering. And in Hebrew, the word for is not there. God will provide himself a lamb for the burnt offering. Whew. So the two of them went together. There it is again. Then Abraham bound his son and laid him on the altar, but the angel of the Lord stopped him. In verse 12, he says, Do not stretch out your hand against the lad and do nothing to him, for now I know that you fear God since you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. Then Abraham raised his eyes and looked, and behind him a ram was caught in the thicket by its horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered him up for a burnt offering. That's Jesus. In place of his son. That's us. And Abraham called the name of that place, the Lord will provide, Jehovah Jireh. Now we can say, God, now I know that you love me because you have not withheld your son, your only son, the son that you love for me. Romans 8.32 He who did not spare his own son but delivered him up for us all on the cross. How will he not with Jesus freely give us all things? If the Lord has given us his best, he will give us the rest. If we were to think that he would withhold any good thing from us, or a promise He has made to us, then we would be saying that He is putting a higher value on those things than on His Son, Jesus Christ. Back to Abraham and Isaac. We've tried to put ourselves in that story as the hero, giving up our Isaacs so that God would bless us. We're not the hero in that story. Our Heavenly Father is the hero for giving up His Son. And our Heavenly Lamb is the hero for giving up His life. One more story. This has gone fast. I told you it would be 30 minutes. This story is the one that touches my heart more than any other regarding the forgiveness of Jesus Christ. It is the story of the woman with the alabaster box of perfume that she poured out at the feet of Jesus. Of all the women in the Bible, I think I relate more to her because of her unabashed love for Jesus, her gratefulness for the love that He showed her. 
In Luke 7, and we know the story, Jesus was invited to Simon the Pharisee's house to eat with him. And in verse 37, it says in Luke 7, There was a woman in the city who was a sinner. And when she learned that Jesus was reclining at the table in the Pharisee's house, she brought an alabaster vial of perfume. And standing behind Jesus at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and kept wiping them with the hair of her head and kissing his feet and anointing them with the perfume. Now this woman was most likely a prostitute. And the alabaster box of perfume was very expensive, possibly worth enough to live on for a year. It was made of a very rare form of marble, and the perfume oil was very expensive. This was like something we might use to invest in the stock market today. And she broke it and poured it out at his feet out of her love for him. And you can imagine how she earned that money for that expensive alabaster box of perfume by selling herself in shame. And all of the shame of lying on her back night after night was removed in that moment when she poured it all out. She was responding to His love for her. Why do you think she went into that house and did this thing that was so shameful in the eyes of the Pharisee? Because she knew who Jesus was. Simon, okay, verse 39. Now when the Pharisee who had invited him in saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would know who and what sort of person this woman is who's touching him, that she is a sinner. Well, reading her mind, Jesus asked him the question, which would love a creditor more, the one that owed 500 denarii or the one who owed 50? And he answered correctly, the one who owed more. So Jesus says, you have judged correctly, and I love this part, turning towards the woman, he said to Simon. So he looks at her, and I thought, this is another woman who saw the glory of God in the face of Jesus. And he says to Simon, Do you see this woman? I entered your house and you gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but since the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she anointed my feet with perfume. For this reason I say to you, her sins, which are many, have been forgiven, for she loved much. But he who is forgiven little, loves little. We've all been forgiven a lot, but some of us just just don't know it. Then he said to her, your sins have been forgiven. Have been forgiven. Done. Perfect passive indicative past tense. Her love for him is proof of his love for her. He who is forgiven much, loves much. 1 John 4.10 This is real love. Not that we loved God, but that God loved us and sent His Son as a sacrifice to take away our sins. 1 John 4.19 We love because He first loved us. Grace changes everything, doesn't it? I'm going to give you one more verse. Galatians 2.20 For I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who lives, but Christ lives in me. And the life I now live in this flesh, i got to live by faith in the Son of God who loved me 
and gave himself for me. So we need to put a magnifying glass on our lives and say the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Don't just say it casually. Don't just say, hey, he loves everybody. He loves me. Take it personally. We need to practice the love of Jesus. And the best time to do that is when we have failed. And we need to see this great demonstration of love. He has forgiven us of our sins in the body of Jesus Christ. The more we receive His love, the more we're going to love Him back, the more we're going to love others, and the more we're going to practice the royal law of love. That's self-sacrificial love. And there is no sin in that kind of love. There's no bad behavior in self-sacrificial love. So I'm, I'm, going, I'm putting all the eggs in this basket. The law is the royal law of love. Our response, you've got to know it first. If you believe right, you will live right from the inside out. Amen? Amen.